Welcome to Transformed by Grace, an in-depth Bible study of God's Word, presented by the Berean Bible Society. Join us each time on this station as Pastor Kevin brings the transforming message of God's grace revealed through the Holy Scriptures. Stories told about a man that fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A philosopher came along and reasoned with him why there are pits in our world. A psychologist then came by and researched the procedures by which he landed in the pit and tried to help him to accept his pit. A religious man came by and told him to keep trying to pull himself up by his bootstraps to keep working at it and get out of that pit. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in a pit. A televangelist came by and promised to raise $50 million to minister to his needs and told him that his lack of faith led him to be in this pit. A politician came by and volunteered to start a national pit elimination program. A county inspector came by and said, do you have a permit for that pit? An optimist said things could be worse. A pessimist said Things are going to get much worse. But then Jesus Christ came and he lifted them out of his pit. Outside of Christ, each of us are in a pit we can't get ourselves out of. A pit of sin, death, condemnation, and judgment. We are without strength. We are unable to save ourselves. We each need a Savior. And religion doesn't save anyone. Only Christ saves There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. No matter how good we might think we are, no matter how religious, no matter all the good that you've done in your life, no one can earn their way to heaven. And we need to lose our religion to find salvation. Because the only way anyone is saved from all of their sins is by trusting the perfect provision made for our sins at the cross trusting that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 4 read, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Spiritually speaking, Paul wrote, For we that is, believers in the body of Christ, are the circumcision. In time past, under God's prophetic program, the circumcision was the Jews. But today, under grace, it is all who have trusted in Christ. We are the circumcision, not because we might happen to be born of Jewish parents. We are the circumcision because of what Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11 teach. Ye are complete in Him in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The believer is complete in Christ apart from religion, apart from any ritualism, and completely by the cross in the resurrection. The circumcision made without hands refers to a spiritual circumcision, a spiritual cutting off 
The body of the sins of the flesh refers to our sinful, fallen human nature. The circumcision of Christ refers to Christ's death on the cross. And Colossians 2, 10-11 teach that the moment we believe and we are placed into Christ, we underwent a spiritual circumcision in which positionally and judicially before God, the body of the sins of the flesh, or our old sin nature, was cut off by Christ's death for sin. By the cross of Christ, we are the circumcision. Because the flesh, our sin nature, was crucified with Christ and cut off positionally before God. In Philippians 3.3, Paul gives three characteristics of the circumcision. First, we worship God in the Spirit. As believers, we worship God not by the deadness and meaninglessness of ritualistic ceremonies and religion, but by the living Spirit of God. True worship of God is not based on externals, but on the attitude of the heart. John 4.24, the Lord said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We worship God in the Spirit by faith and obedience to the truth of God's Word. And worship, in its truest sense, involves the whole of our lives as we live by faith in Christ. We worship God by living set-apart lives which bring honor and glory to our Savior. We worship God by being faithful and obedient workers in our jobs, by being godly and loving husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers, as we serve others, as we are an authentic, consistent testimony for Christ, we worship God. And Paul says, we, the circumcision, rejoice not in religious observances or in ourselves or what we've done, but instead, he says, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in what He's done. Our boast is Christ. Our glory is His cross. All that we are and all that we have spiritually and eternally is because of Him. 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31 says, But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And as the circumcision, we have no confidence in the flesh. We do not rely in religious uh, attainments, accomplishments, or external works for acceptance with God. We are gods because we have not placed our confidence in these things, but because we have placed our confidence solely and completely in Jesus Christ, and we have rested in what Christ has done on our behalf to save us from all of our sins. While the religious often display great confidence Sinful men in their flesh have no grounds for confidence before God. Without Christ, each of us are powerless to achieve righteousness or gain eternal life. And each person must come to the point of having no confidence in the flesh and then to humbly trust Christ alone that He died for us and rose again. A woman was arguing with a pastor about faith and works for salvation. She said, I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat. One oar is faith, and the other oar 
the other oar works. If you use both, you get there. If you use only one, you go in circles. The pastor replied, the problem with that is nobody's going to heaven in a rowboat. We're going to heaven through Christ because of Him, because of what Christ has done for us. And by faith in Christ alone, we're going to heaven. So many see salvation as a work of man for God, and they trust in their good works to save them. But God's Word declares that salvation is a work of God for man by grace. And we just need to trust it and receive His free gift of eternal life. Writing about having no confidence in the flesh triggered memories and emotion in the Apostle Paul as he recalled when he placed his confidence in the flesh for salvation. And this led Paul by the Holy Spirit to give us his personal testimony to give us a self-portrait of a religious unbeliever. And Paul shows the Philippians and all of us that his attainments and heritage surpassed everyone. If anyone could boast about strict observance of religion, it was himself. If anyone had good reason to trust in themselves and believe that their religious credentials could gain heaven, it was Paul. And he lays his merits on the table. He pulls back the curtain, revealing his large trophy case for all to see, and shows how he had more grounds for boasting than anyone else. And he opens the book of his life like an auditor to show us his wealth. But then he reveals the truth of how he was actually in every way spiritually bankrupt. Paul wrote this like a showdown. And a challenge. But even before he gets specific, he concludes ahead of time that he had exceeded any advantage or credential given by any other opponent. If any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, he says, I more. We often think of the flesh as only that part of man that drives them to commit sin and wickedness and live in sin and for self. But we learn here that the flesh is also very, very religious. And when the flesh tries to do good and be good or be better than others, that's when the flesh is the most dangerous because then that person sees no need for Christ. They think they are fine in themselves, that God would have to accept them and that they need no Savior. We'll be returning to the program in just a minute. But first, we'd like to take this time to thank you, our partners, for making these programs possible. If you would like to access our library of helpful Bible study tools, go to BereanBibleSociety.org. Dispensationalism, The Ages and Dispensations in God's Word, is a 28-page booklet written by Pastor Paul M. Sadler. This booklet outlines what the scriptures say concerning how God has dispensed His will to mankind in the ages and dispensations. To order your copy, contact the Berean Bible Society for pricing and availability at 262-255-4750 or visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. To receive our free full-color 32-page monthly magazine, the Berean Searchlight, call 262-255-4750 
or subscribe online at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. Thank you again for your generous gifts. And now, back to the teaching with Pastor Kevin. Philippians 3, 5-6 reads, Circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul lists seven things here. The first four he had by birth, apart from choice. The last three he voluntarily chose. The first four are in relation to Israel. The last three are in relation to the law. Paul says that he was circumcised the eighth day. Paul was a Jew and a child of the covenant. He was not a proselyte to the Jewish religion who was circumcised later in life, and he was not an Ishmaelite who was circumcised in their 13th year. At the proper time, he had gone through the ceremony that initiated him into God's covenant people, and he started out in life in strict adherence to the law of Moses. Paul was by birth of the stock of Israel a member of the nation who were in covenant relationship with God. No other nation or people had this relationship. Paul inherited all the blessings of being a member of the covenant nation. Romans 3, 1 and 2 says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Paul had these advantages, being circumcised the eighth day and of the stock of Israel. Paul was a physical Descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not descended from Ishmael, Abraham's other son, or Esau, Isaac's other son. The blood of Jacob flowed in Paul's veins. And from Jacob, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the two sons born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. He was the last of Jacob's sons to be born and the only patriarch to be born in the promised land. This tribe had a rich history. They had the honor of Israel's first king, Saul, being a Benjamite. This tribe was faithful to David during Absalom's rebellion. When the kingdom split after Solomon's death, the tribe of Benjamin with Judah remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty and stood true to the temple as God's rightful place of worship. Mordecai, who was used by God with Esther to save the Jews from genocide, was of the tribe of Benjamin. This was a prominent, a prestigious tribe to have come from. And in pride, this fact was worn as a badge of honor for Paul. Paul states that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Hebrew son of a Hebrew father and a Hebrew mother, a pure-blooded Jew, having pure Hebrew lineage, no unclean Gentile blood in his family line. In the flesh, Paul could, and he did, trust in his rich heritage. Being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was also thoroughly acquainted with the Hebrew language, with Hebrew customs, and the Hebrew scriptures. As touching or regarding the law, a Pharisee, Paul wrote meaning that he was a devout Jew, belonging to the group who were the strict, meticulous observers and defenders of the Mosaic law. Unlike the liberal theologians of the Sadducees, Sadducees, Paul was orthodox to the core and a Pharisee. 
His father before him had been a Pharisee. Before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23.6, Paul said, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Before Agrippa, Paul said that after the most straightest or strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Next, Paul stated concerning zeal, persecuting the church, which tells us that Paul was also an activist and not some passive religionist. Paul ardently put his belief into action. He was a zealot for Judaism. He punished those who did not agree with his religion and punished those who believed in Jesus Christ. Paul was the ringleader of the persecution of the kingdom church from the death of Stephen until his own conversion. Acts 8.3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And next, Paul wrote, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In other words, by all outward appearances, Paul conformed perfectly to the law. Those who observed Paul in his life found his behavior to be blameless. They found no fault, nothing worthy of blame. He doesn't say he was sinless. But where and when he failed, he brought the prescribed sacrifice. He was to those who knew him, and in his own eyes, a model Jew who lived faultlessly and meticulously by Jewish law and tradition. He was perfect before men. When judged by men, according to the righteousness of the law, to, or according to the righteousness that the law demanded, he was blameless. You could say he scored a hundred in Judaism. And Paul believed himself to be righteous and right before God because of his own self-effort and his own self-righteousness. Philippians 3, 7 through 9 reads, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own, mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul once put these seven items in his spiritual profit and gain column, but now he placed them in the loss column. All, his, all of his religious credentials, achievements, privileges were now worthless. They could not save him. They could not give him righteousness. Paul had much to lose by placing his faith in Christ, and he did lose much in the way of power, reputation, and prestige among his peers and in his religion. But after Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he trusted him as his Savior, Paul's whole perspective on life and spiritual things changed. All of his cherished religious achievements and gains became deficits and losses and meant nothing anymore. This proud man was humbled, and his self-righteousness became a filthy rag. And he abandoned his works righteousness for 
true righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul may have lost some things, but his gain was infinite. Gaining eternal life, righteousness, and gaining Christ. In putting these things in the loss column, Paul saw how salvation does not come by ritual or ceremony, like Jewish circumcision. And from that we know that salvation does not come through the Mass. It doesn't come through water baptism. It doesn't come through the Eucharist. It doesn't come from confirmation. It doesn't come because you gave up this or you gave up that. It doesn't come from any rite or ceremony in the church. Paul also learned how no standing with God is gained by birth, family, status, race, or nationality. Righteousness is not achieved by being a priest, by being a scholar, by being a devout religious person. It's not earned by keeping the law. It's not earned by keeping the Ten Commandments. Paul learned that religious zeal guarantees nothing. It means nothing when it's misguided. The religious who by all outward appearances appear pious and good, who are willing to make any effort to pay any price to please God, who zealously pray, who fast, who sacrifice, who serve others, who feed the poor, who give tons of money to charity without trusting Christ alone to save them from their sins, they're lost, they're dead in their sins, and they're headed for judgment. Paul learned that religion and zeal for religious works accounts nothing toward salvation or righteousness. Paul learned that he had to lose his religion to find salvation. What Paul gained by losing his religion and his religious achievements was Christ. And a personal relationship with our Savior is infinitely superior to all other things in every respect. Following his conversion, Paul's misguided passion for religion then became a passion for his Savior. And it was following his conversion that Paul really started living. Because Paul's life was truly transformed by the grace of God. Paul considered now as loss not only the things just listed, but expands it to include everything, all things. He, count, he counted anything and everything that might conceivably be a rival to Christ, all works, all comforts, all privileges, anything that could possibly come between him and his Lord, he says it's a loss, it's a liability, it's a disadvantage. Paul did not want to deprive himself of Christ, or I love how he puts that, the excellency of the knowledge of him. Paul counted all things as loss, that he might gain the surpassing excellency and greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, personally, and to grow in knowing him more and more. Paul had thrown aside as rubbish everything he had previously counted on and worked for in trying to gain favor with God. Ancestry, nationality, culture, prestige, education, religion, personal attainments, all of these things 
the apostle abandoned as grounds for boasting and saw them so much differently after trusting Christ. All he had done, everything on which he had put his heart into and all of his hopes and dreams for honor and distinction, his religious credentials, his religious accomplishments, all of it was lost. Now he counted it as just dung, rubbish, waste, refuse, and filth. And with the strongest language, Paul expresses his disdain for all the religious labors by which he had sought to impress men and God. In view of and in comparison to the value of gaining Christ and knowing Christ, when you compare the two, all of that religion was just waste and refuse. Righteousness was the goal of Paul's life as a Pharisee. And he futilely tried to obtain it on his own by, by religion, by religiously keeping the law apart from faith. But being in Christ, he no longer was clinging to self-righteousness and, and keeping the law. He had true righteousness now, the gift of righteousness, which is received by faith alone in Christ and given by the faithfulness of Christ. Paul shows us here that salvation requires righteousness. The righteousness that has its source not in ourselves, but of God. And we are given God's righteousness by faith and faith alone. In the city of Basel, Switzerland, each year, there is a carnival that takes place at the beginning of Lent. It is much like Mardi Gras. It is a wild affair with all the debauchery that one associates with Mardi Gras. Everyone knows what goes on, even though they may not know exactly who does it because the people wear masks. Each year, the Salvation Army uses the carnival in Basel to make the gospel known, and it does so in a striking way. All around the city, the Salvation Army places billboards and posters which say, God sees behind your mask. God sees behind the everyday masks we wear. God looks on your heart. He looks on my heart. What does He see behind your mask? Does He see religious deeds that you're relying on that are not backed up by divine life within you? Does He see your belief that you can earn your way into His favor? Does he see your rejection of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? We need to come to the same realization that Paul did, that salvation and eternal life is not found by trying, or trying really hard. It's not by being religious. It's not by working for it. It's by trusting Christ alone as your personal Savior. Please trust Him right now. Thank you again for tuning in to Transformed by Grace. We appreciate your prayer support and the financial gifts. 
The purpose and mission of the Berean Bible Society is to help you understand the whole counsel of the Word of God. For more information, visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org or give us a call at 262-255-4750. Or if you prefer, write us at the Berean Bible Society, P.O. Box 756, Germantown, Wisconsin, 53022. Now until next time, may you be transformed by God's grace.